Morning, everybody. Thanks to Haley and Brandon for filling in on short notice this week and blessing us, preparing us to hear from the Lord. And thanks to you all for being here as well. It's great to have you here this morning. If you're new or joining us, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John since Advent, since Christmas time. And today we begin part four of the sermon series entitled, I Am. And the, the subtitle, if you will, or the title of this section is Prelude to Passion. Prelude to Passion. Now, the only thing I knew of a prelude as a kid was my mom's Honda. So if you need a reminder of the definition, it's on the screen for you. A prelude is an action or event serving as an introduction to something more important. And John 11 and 12 prepare us for Calvary, prepare us for the climax of the redemptive mission of God from Genesis chapter 3 to that point. So an incredible, incredible chapter indeed. And this week, you'll see the title slide. We're starting with, of course, the great uh, raising of Lazarus miracle, all right, this final incredible sign miracle of Jesus in his ministry. And so today we're going to begin that, really serve as an introduction. And you'll see the title of this week's sermon, The Best Is Yet to Come. And really, like I said, that could be the title for all of 11 and 12. But, but today you'll see why I have uh, called it that, The Best Is Yet to to come. And an example of this that we might be able to relate with, how many of you have ever hiked Table Rock Mountain? All right, several of you have gone up, and that's just kind of how I, I think of the mountain as you hike it, because there's several beautiful views on your way up, but really the best is yet to come, that final view. And one of those views on the way up the mountain, I call the shelter view. You guys know the little shelter that's a little more than halfway up the mountain. So if you've never hiked it before, you, you work your way up a very steep hike. Again, it's a seven-mile round-trip hike to the top and back down. So about halfway up, you get this cute little shelter, and it's really your first view, because behind the shelter is a bare rock you can sit on, and it's a beautiful view of some part of Greenville County. I don't even know where I'm at at that point, but it's, it's gorgeous. And I've led groups up there being in ministry, and, and typically someone will joke, hey, we'll just stay here at the shelter. You go on to the top and come back. This is good enough, right? Because it's their first time up the mountain. But my point of view is different because I've been to the top. And so you encourage them, no, you need to keep going because the best is yet to come. And, and that's what we're going to see here in this passage as we, as we uh, introduce this great miracle. Again, we won't even get to the miracle of Lazarus' raising this week or even next week. I wanted to take this chapter in small pieces, but we're going to see some great theology as we start to anticipate Calvary, as we start to anticipate the great climax of God's redemptive work, which we've been singing and, and praying already uh, this morning. Look at this passage up on the screen in, in terms of point of view, right? As, as we compare our point of view in, in life as we're going through difficult things with, with the Lord who sees the whole picture. This is a great passage from 2 Corinthians 4. Paul writes there, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. There's our point of view. Our inner self, as we just finished singing about, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God's point of view. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, God's point of view. As we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, this life, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The best is yet to come. You'll see here up on the screen as we look at the first 16 verses of chapter 11, John chapter 11, here's our sermon in a sentence, our big idea. Today we will begin to learn why the tragedy at Bethany would not end in death, but in the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come before you this morning in prayer, thanking you for the privilege of gathering corporately with no fear of persecution, no fear of discovery, no fear of arrest. We know that's not the case for all who woke up to worship you this day, but we are thankful. Thank you for this nation, and thank you for this church. And now, as we continue to worship you, prepare our hearts, open our hearts to hear from you, Lord. You know where each and every person sitting in this room is with you, young and old alike and in between. Continue your work of sanctification for those of us who have already been rescued, but for those in this room who have not, continue to work that great, gracious harvest of salvation as you plant gospel seeds, as you water seeds that have already been planted, and even today, Lord, bring about a harvest of salvation. We ask for those things. And help us not to leave here without a deeper sense and understanding of your glory, Lord God, especially in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 11. We're going to look at this passage in two parts and look at two specific ways that God's glory in Christ um, represents that the, the, the reality of the title, the best is yet to come. And the first thing we're going to see here is, you can see up on the screen, that a better death and raising. This passage points us beyond Lazarus to a better death and a better raising. I didn't use the word resurrection there because Lazarus, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks, was not resurrected. He was simply raised. But our Lord and Savior will be, of course, and so, uh, you know, think, uh, for, those, for those of you who are football plants, think of the NFL playoffs, right? Teams are always trying to become the number one seed. Why? So they'll have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. And typically you'll hear a commentator say something like this when, when, that, when the team finally gets that number one seed. This year, the road to the Super Bowl runs through Pittsburgh. If only, right? That's my team, the Steelers. But you'll, you'll hear something like that. So as we're going to see, the road to Calvary runs through Bethany. That's what John wants us to see. The road to Calvary runs through Bethany. So right here at the outset, I'm going to tell you two important things about the miracle that we'll get to eventually in a couple weeks. First and foremost, it's a sign miracle. Like all these great miracles in John's gospel, we talked about it a lot in Acts as well. These are sign miracles. They're a sign of something greater, something greater that God wants us to understand in terms of the gospel and usually our need of what comes from the gospel. Uh, typically today, when people get into miracles, the miracles become an end in themselves. The miracles of God are never meant to be an end. They're meant to be a means to an end. And that's the same thing with the raising of Lazarus. It's all about what's coming next, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to talk about, because we've mentioned this before in this series, is that this miracle also 
puts into motion, puts into motion events that would lead to Jesus' arrest and his death on the cross. And that's why, and again, this is where we've mentioned this in the past, that's why in John's gospel you see him slip away often. In John 6, when they wanted to make him the Messiah, he stopped the whole thing. When he had a mega church, we had a, he had an army that he could have taken and marched to Jerusalem because it wasn't time yet. This passage brings to the surface this, this important reality of God's timing with each and every moment, and more importantly, the Son, Jesus' respect for that. Nobody had an agenda that was going to trump the agenda God had for the Son, and the Son was wholly obedient to that, every detail of God's plan and timing. And we're going to see that this morning as well. So without further ado, let us read the first six verses of 11. We're actually going to back up. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in John 10, so we're going to back up to 1040 to get a little bit of that, uh, the timing here. And remember, 1040 is kind of like December of the, the Lord's final year on earth. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So we have this town of Bethany close to Jerusalem. We have this family, uh, these, these uh, three siblings, we have met Mary and Martha in John 10, the end of John 10. There's that great passage you're probably familiar with. This is the first time we hear about Lazarus. But we see here of these three siblings, Mary is the most well-known, right? She's kind of the, the famous one. And, and remember, John's writing in, nine, in the 90s. So 60 years has gone by since these events. So her anointing of the Lord's feet became one of the most well-known stories. So, that's, so John's assuming that his readers know of that. And they're like, oh, okay, she's that woman, right? In fact, you could go to Matthew 26, and the story is told there, the story that we haven't even gotten to yet in John's gospel. In fact, Robert will be preaching that on July 14th as we get to John chapter 12. So John himself hasn't even narrated that story, and yet he's referring to it here. And if you look on the screen, you'll see uh, the passage that Jesus kind of gives a prophecy that we see fulfilled in John 11. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her, referring to Mary. Mary, here we see it fulfilled 60 years later. So getting to this tragedy, you'll see in, in verse 3 there, the sisters sent Jesus a message saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. What's interesting there is, and we'll talk about this in the application, she, they don't even make a request, right? Do you guys have a friend like that? Somebody that you don't even have to make a specific request. You'll just, you just tell them what's wrong, knowing that they're going to come 
through. So they, they make that request, they, or they don't make the request, they just let Jesus know. And then we get to verse four, which folks, this is the most important verse for understanding all of John 11. This is the theological key to the entire thing. The glory of God in and through Jesus Christ. Because in this passage, we learn something here that we need to take with us as we continue on the road to Bethany. And that is what we've already, I've already talked about, that this isn't about Lazarus. Okay, and this is an important miracle, but it's a sign of something greater to come. Again, the best is yet to come. And it's a sign that through this, through, through this road through Bethany, it will ultimately lead Jesus to Calvary. It will lead Jesus to the passion, to, to the, from every detail of the false trial, the arrest, to the beating, and to that glorious death on the cross. And of course, you can't separate this stuff, the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. It's one unbreakable chain of events that we call the gospel, all through Jesus taking this path. So it's so important that you see the importance. And we'll come back to this verse. We'll come back to verse four over the next couple weeks and, and refer to it. But again, this is so key, so important. In fact, we could have called the entire series in chapter 11, the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ. It gives us the title and the point of this great passage. So, infor- so important for us uh, to see that. But moving on to verse five and six, when we read this, did that catch your attention? Did it kind of catch you off guard a little bit? It seems like there's a contradiction here in verses five and six, right? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. What? That doesn't make any sense. It would be like, you know, the soldier loved his wife, so he re-upped for another six months in Afghanistan. No, that doesn't make sense. He needs to come home, right? Well, let's talk about this. Verse five, John inserts that so that we know for sure that he's not delaying his trip to Bethany to help the sisters out and ultimately to help Lazarus. He's not delaying that out of a lack of love. So John wants us to know that. That's not the reason why he's delaying. Secondly, see the word so in the beginning of verse six? That acts as therefore, very similar to therefore right? But the so is not connecting back to verse 5. It's connecting back to verse 4. Because of the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ and everything I just got talking about, about the best is yet to come and how this miracle should, should make us think of Calvary, because of that, he waited. And this is where that timing is so crucial, right? Jesus was not going to be moved by anyone else's agenda except by the Father. Again, we've seen this before. Remember his mom wanting him to turn the water to wine with the brothers in chapter seven, wanting him to go up to the feast. He was not gonna go on anyone else's timetable except the Father's because the timing was so crucial. Besides that, most scholars, at least that I studied this week, in fact, all the ones I studied, believe that Lazarus was already dead when the messenger arrived to Jesus. In fact, next week we'll see that this is, there's a four day, four days essentially, by the time Jesus gets to Bethany, four days has gone by. Lazarus at that point had been dead by, for four days. So if we want to do a little math here, it would take one day, presumably, if, if Jesus was still on the other side of the Jordan River, opposite Jerusalem, 
It would take one day for the messenger to find him, then the two days delaying, and then one day for Jesus and the disciples to make their way to Bethany. So he was probably already dead at that point. So there's no lack of love here. Very important for us to see that. So as we continue here, let's talk about application. And by the way, another way to illustrate that would be, we, many of us have flown on an airplane. What happens when you get close to your destination, captain comes on, we're going to make our final approach. Now, I don't know anything about flying, but I assume that once they hit a certain distance from the airport, that final approach, there's so much going into that as far as calculation and timing. So we could, again, very similar to, to what's happening here. So a few application points for us. First and foremost, when it comes to the glory of God and, and those who follow God, this quote kind of helped me out when it comes to life's difficulties. This is from uh, Hanchen. It says, God's glory does not consist in sparing the faithful life, faithful lives' difficulties, the faithful life's difficulties from a long time ago. Essentially, what he's saying is there's no guarantee for those of us who follow Christ when it comes to glorifying God that we're going to be spared from brokenness. And typically, brokenness is, is weaved into those moments when we will see God's glory, experience God's glory, and even be used for God's glory. It's important for us to see that. And I think you all know that. Uh, many of you have been through very difficult times and have had opportunities to see him move, to see him work in incredible ways. So, so that's important. There's no guarantee that we will not face the difficulties in life. In fact, it reminds me of a couple weeks ago, I was listening to Robert's sermon from John 10, and I was reminded about John 10.10. 10. It's probably the most taken out of context verse in the New Testament. You've probably heard it, that Jesus came so that we could have life and have it abundantly, right? Denominations have been named after that verse, churches. And, and typically the way that's translated and taken out of context is they apply it to this life, like your best life now kind of stuff. And that's not the context. Life in that verse is all about eternal life, all about the fact, again, that the best is yet to come. This is not our best life now. In fact, I was talking to the, the kids from runner's camp this week, a little group I had, and one of the things that I told them was, and, and they liked it, it really, it really worked for them, which was cool, that this life for those who are lost is the close, closest to heaven they'll ever get. And for those of us who are saved, this life is the closest to hell we will ever get. So it's a way to think about it. So that's important for us as we, as we contemplate what we're learning here uh, today. In fact, Peter helps us out here. This is a great passage when you're going through difficult times. Make note of it if you're not already using this. It's from 1 Peter 5. And the context is those who are suffering, those Christians who are suffering because they're Christians, right? Christian persecution. We don't have that yet, although we can see it heading that direction in our society. We know a lot of our brothers and sisters do around the world. Uh, but that's kind of the context. So really, you start back up in verse 6, and it's a very encouraging passage. But you can apply these truths, too, when you're dealing with any difficult circumstances. So the hymn there uh, is the devil. So let's read this together. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, here's the promise, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
So good, so good for us. Final application I want to share with you. These sisters give us a great example of what we should be doing regularly, but also, of course, when we face difficulties. The first one is vertical, right? Who are you going to call when life starts going in the tank, right? Wouldn't it be great to have Jesus as a friend? Wait a minute, we do, right? How can you blame them? But just imagine from their point of view, first century, you've seen him already do some incredible stuff, and your brother gets deathly ill, right? Who are you going to call? Jesus. And we can do that as well, and that's in the form of prayer. Raise your hand this morning if you're in need of prayer because of something you're going through in life. Come on, get them up. Everyone look around. I encourage you, go find someone and ask them how you could be praying for them this week. We need to pray. We need to bring our requests and make them known to God. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean pray every second, but it should be a regular part of our life that we're continually knee-jerk coming to the Lord when we brush up against hard times and difficulties, making intercession. The second thing these sisters do that's great, they don't only give us a vertical uh, example, but they give us a horizontal one as well. And they help to bring up to the surface the reality that one thing we, we need as Christians that we've been recreated to depend upon is Christian community. Christian community. None of us can get through this life alone. And that's where the beauty of the local church comes in. Not just Sunday morning, but getting in even smaller groups and doing life together through the week. And that's really important to us here. It's one of our core values at the church at Blue Ridge. And so we see them, of course, reaching out for help, all right? Reaching out to have for help. They knew, they had a sense of who Jesus was in terms of being the Messiah, but then again, he was just that friend down the street that they could call in times of trouble. Again, that friend who they didn't even have to make a request. They just let him know what was wrong because they knew, they knew that he would jump in and come alongside and things that he would do. And we all need that. Do you have a friend like that? That's what we need to be as a church. And so very important that we need to see that and help make application. And here's a great passage from James that, that exhorts us to do that in times of need. James says at the end of his letter, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Haven't we done that already this morning? And it's been wonderful. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I've seen this so much in the church here in South Carolina, the stoic pride that, oh, I can do it on my own. I don't need help. And that, my friends, is ungodly. It's hard. We have to get over ourselves. But if you're struggling, ask for help. Uh, and I can speak for Robert. Call us up. Email us. But we're not the only ones here in this group that would be willing to help you out. But don't go it alone. Whether it's circumstances or even if it's your sinful struggle, we want to come alongside. We're about, re we're about redemption, not judgment. We're about restoring, not punishing. We do counseling. We'd love to help. So again, I think you guys get the point. Let's move on to the second part of today's sermon. You'll see the slide up on the screen. Not only will we see a, or should we at least think about a better death and a better raising behind this whole Lazarus episode, but a stronger faith in Christ. Again, it wasn't just about Lazarus. It was about what God, what Jesus was doing in the hearts and lives of 
his disciples, no doubt the sisters, and even, as we'll see, a big group of people who will come and witness this incredible miracle uh, later on in the chapter. So a stronger faith in Christ. And of course, he's doing that in us as well. Look at this quote up on the screen from Leon Morris, great theologian. He says, there are new depths of faith to be plumbed, new heights of faith to be scaled. Table Rock, the raising of Lazarus will have a profound effect on them, the disciples, and give their faith a new context it did not have before. And God is longing to do that in each of our lives as well, those who already know him. So let's read this great passage, starting, picking back up in verse 7. I decided to make the break here simply because this is where the disciples come in. We haven't seen them yet in this passage. Now they enter into uh, this story. Then after this, the two-day delay, he said to, his, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So a few observations in this passage that you'll see. Uh, Starting there in verse 7, you know, Jesus says, hey, let's go, it's time to go. We see the disciples and they give, the disciples give their first of two objections why they shouldn't go to Judea. Notice the text doesn't say Bethany. Obviously, they're going to Bethany. But Judea should make us think in terms of, of the, the road to Calvary. This is all about going back to the lion's den. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago when Daniel preached in John 10, uh, right after Jesus made that incredible theological statement, which also connects to today's passage, again, the glory of God in Christ, He made that great statement uh, that I and the Father are one. And that's when they picked up stones. I think it was 1031 to stone him. And he he did one of those slipping away type things. So that's what the disciples are referring to, right? Do you guys know anyone else in the Bible who was crazy enough to go back into a town they just got stoned in? Of course, Jesus didn't get stoned. This guy did. Remember Paul on his first missionary journey? Some people say the stone hit him too hard in the head. No, that's not the case. But that's what people who are, are sold out for the, the mission and the glory of God do. They don't think about themselves and their, their safety. They think about the mission. And that's what Jesus is uh, committed to here, committed to the mission, right back in to the lion's den. So he gives them a figurative metaphor very similar to the one in John 9. You guys remember John 9 with the healing of the blind man? There's some definite parallels here with what we've already read today and that chapter. And here's one of them where he, he asked them this question, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now, again, a reminder for Jews in the first century, when they referred to day, it was simply the time of the day the sun was out. That was a day to them. 
And that changed depending on the season. Sometimes it was more light and sometimes it was other. So daylight brought opportunity, but it also brought limited opportunity. And that's Jesus's point here. For him, again, day was the time that he had on earth for his earthly mission. And it may have been the 11th hour. That time was almost up, but it was no time to take a break now. We've got to complete the mission. And he says, the light of this world. In the metaphor, he's referring to the sun. But of course, the meaning is himself, the light of the world, right? We need to finish the mission. The safest place those disciples could be was with Jesus because it was still day and they still had work to do. It makes me think about, think of what some have said before that the safest place for us as Christians is right at the center of God's will even though that might be one crazy storm. That is the safest place to be. And Thomas, at the end, will kind of bring that aspect out. So we'll talk more about it then. But So he gives this, this figurative, just reminding him, just like in John 9, we've got work to do. My mission's not done yet. Have courage. And then verse 10 is a great verse because there's so much in here we don't have time for in terms of theology. He said, if anyone walks in the night without Christ... He stumbles because the light is not in him. So there's some incredible truth there that we could, we could spend some time on applying to salvation. We should, the gospel. But if anyone in this room, anyone on this planet, doesn't have Christ in them, they are in utter darkness. And the way you know that is because as you go through your life, you're going to be stumbling one thing after another on your face and complete brokenness, a sign that you do not have the light of the world, and you need it. You need it, and that's why we're here today, to share this wonderful, wonderful gospel. But we're going to move on. So the disciples hear that, and then Jesus tells them, so because of this, we need to go to Bethany, for Lazarus has fallen asleep. How many times have we seen this in John's gospel? The disciples, Nicodemus, the Jews, Jesus says something figurative and they take him literal. So now we see the disciples say, this is kind of the second reason why we shouldn't go to Judea. Well, hey, if he's resting, that means he's on the road to recovery. Why do we even need to go and help him out? These guys did not want to go to Judea. So Jesus, like he often does, has to get a little more literal and speak in plain language. And we see the verse 13, kind of a parenthetical statement explaining that. And then in verse 14, he just comes out and says, Lazarus has died. Very interesting here. This is in the aorist tense. It's very abrupt in the original language, which scholars believe uh, points to Jesus's omniscient gift as God. He, he knows all things. And you, we see that throughout this passage, but he has supernatural knowledge of events that are taking place a day's journey away. And so that's, it's very important to see that in verse 14. And then verse 15 brings us to, I think, the very important passage, the central passage of this second part. And it should have caught your attention once again. It should have made you pause and bring a little bit of shock into your mind, as it probably did the original hearers of it. Let's read verse 15 again. Actually, 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad. Did Jesus just say he was glad that Lazarus died? Kind of. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Hmm. Why? So that they may believe. 
He implies that had he been there in Bethany when Lazarus got sick, Lazarus wouldn't have died because he would have healed him. But he's glad that that wasn't the case because he knew that this miracle was going to work deeply in the hearts of his disciples and their continual progress of sanctification, if you will, and their continual growth. As one day in the future when they finally received the Holy Spirit and everything was going to make sense and come together, they could look back and take from that experience such strength and understanding of the gospel and apply that into the very difficult road that they would have, as we see in the book of Acts, to being on mission for Christ and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And my friends, that's the same thing God wants for us as well. Uh, While this is true for those who are lost coming to be saved, the primary application for this, again, is in terms of the progressive work of God in the hearts of his believers, in our hearts. We We call it sanctification a lot of the time, but that's what's happening here. At some level, the disciples were already believers, kind of in an old covenant sense. They were already believers. So this was an opportunity for them to grow. And isn't that the case in our lives as well? When the Lord allows difficulty, when the Lord brings brokenness, don't think for a moment when the bad things come that God was sleeping or God was taking a break from his watch. It's better for us to understand that it was actually authored and designed by him. And can he not do that when he's already taken care of the future for us, for all eternity? And that's why we have to remember, especially in those moments, the best is yet to come. And he knew that. Again, think of the table rock illustration, right? God's point of view, he sees the beginning from the end. We're the ones that want to stop at the shelter halfway and say, all right, I'm good, just leave me here until you come back. No, there's more. Keep going. I've got this. And so when it comes to you and I placing our faith in God, as the object of our faith, that's the point. We're trusting that he knows best, that he sees it all, and he has our best interests at mind and in heart, regardless of what we go through in this life. He's already taken care of the ends. We need to trust him with the means, regardless of how hard those might be. Final verse we see here is verse 16. Let me tell you something. I like Thomas. All right, Thomas is my guy. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. The whole doubting Thomas thing. should be honest Thomas. He's saying what everyone else is thinking. And I like guys like that, right? He's just saying, I mean, you know, he's always saying what the others are thinking. What's interesting here is John presents Thomas as the spokesperson of the disciples. Now, who's usually the spokesperson of the disciples? Peter. So the fact that Thomas is kind of taking charge and taking the lead here It's actually caused scholars to speculate that maybe Peter wasn't around for the whole Lazarus miracle. Maybe he was still up in Galilee and would join them later uh, in the week or something like that. And it's possible. Uh, Peter's actually, I didn't realize this, but Peter's absent from John 6 all the way to the beginning of John 13. Uh, And there's even a, a deeper thread I could go into which, again, we'll talk about it in the weeks to come, but a lot of the scholars will ask if the miracle to Lazarus was such a catalyst for the road to Calvary and the arrest of Jesus, why did the other three gospel writers leave it out? So let that ponder in your minds, and we'll talk more about that uh, next week or so. So very, really interesting. But, you know, he, he's, he is being a little pessimistic here, right? 
But he's also willing to follow Jesus into the eye of the storm, into the lion's den. I think we need to give Thomas some credit here. So there's positive in verse 16. It's not all negative. Like I I think I've read it before, right? He is pessimistic. If you know anything about followership, Thomas is your your alienated follower, right? He's a critical thinker, but he may not always be on board. But regardless, he gives us an invitation. And we'll talk about that here as we get to the application part of this section. God's work in testing us, friends, is a lot like muscle building, right? You know about that. You work out, you kind of do some damage to the muscles. What happens? They grow back stronger. It's the same thing God's doing with us when it comes to to difficulty. So let's look at a few application points, and then we'll be done. First of all, let's not miss, let's not miss this truth. If you're in Christ today, death, the great equalizer of all mankind, has been reduced to simply falling asleep. Isn't that beautiful? Don't miss that. That great roaring lion that's waiting for all humans at the end of their life has been reduced to a kitten for us if you're in Christ. That's beautiful. It's just, when it comes, it's going to be falling asleep because what we open our eyes up to next is beyond imagination. Believe that. Again, the best is yet to come. Uh, Secondly, we talked about the Lord using trials to train and grow us. Again, that muscle building. I just want to give you a great passage to, again, put into your arsenal for difficult times. Hebrews 11 and 12. Read them together and go to it often. Again, chapter 11, you get the hall of faith. You get this great family lineage of those who have come before us in the Old Testament and their faithfulness to to follow God's course for their lives. Then you get the great exhortation for us to run our race, looking to Jesus as he ran his. And then chapter 12 helps us to explain how God works to discipline and train us during the difficult experiences that we have in life. So just remember that, Hebrews 11 and 12. And then there's one simple word. One simple word can sum up this idea of the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ. How did, God, how did Jesus bring glory to God? Obedience. One simple word. Obedience to the revealed will of God. Now, where do we go to find out the revealed will of God? His holy word. That's why we teach it. That's why we don't try to make up our own sermons from scratch. We use the scriptures and go verse by verse. Our obedience to his revealed word. And then from this word, as he's leading us uh, as a church, as families, as followers of Christ, that's what glorifies him. So I'm asking the question in my heart, where am I not being obedient to what God's revealed? That's where I'm not glorifying him. And that's what you can do as well. And as a church, as we, as we seek his will, as we come to a time of transition, ensuring that we're being obedient to what he's revealing to us from his word and as he's calling us to apply his word in this life. Really important to understand how that works. And again, as we go back to the last verse, and Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. That's an invitation to everybody, to every Christian. Thomas is inviting us to lay aside whatever is getting in the way and following Jesus wholeheartedly, laying aside every sin and everything that trips us up and following him. And here's another great passage that that I love, that I try to pray and fulfill each day. And Jesus says to the disciples there, he says, if anyone would come after me, 
Don't we all call ourselves followers of Jesus, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So some important words in there you've got to see is denial comes first. We've got to kill the flesh. We've got to deny ourselves before we try to follow him. And then you see daily. That tells us it's a habit. It's a habit, and there's a, there's a progression over time. But it's so important uh, for us. And then finally, again, just that reminder. The best is yet to come, but also in this chapter, the best is yet to come. So please make plans to come back next week as we get to Bethany and as we see those two great interactions that Jesus has with Martha and with Mary. And just to double down on the invitation part, if you're here and you're not certain that you're in Christ, that he has saved you, that you're a new creation, friends, you don't know when your end will be. And I would hate to see you come to that lion when it could be a kitten because of salvation in Christ Jesus. So please come and talk to us. The invitation's open. I'll actually this morning be standing in the back. So if you want to come while we're singing and pull me aside uh, or contact myself or Robert or others you know in this church later in the day, do not put off that important conversation. The invitation is always open. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up as we continue to worship with a couple more songs. And friends, one of the great things about singing after hearing the word, it gives us an immediate opportunity to, to profess our appreciation to God for his revealed word, for what he's teaching us, and just the, the very, very least the reminder of the glorious gospel that we've talked about this morning. So take, if you're in Christ, take advantage of this opportunity to proclaim and sing with incredible passion because of what he's done. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this time of introduction we've had to this great chapter and just the simple reminder that you have taken care of the ends in the most glorious way by giving us eternal life. One of the, one of the New Testament writers, even I think it's Paul in Ephesians, talks about how it's already done, how we're already in Christ. We're already seated in the heavenlies with you. That's how real it is. And in Romans 8, the glorification being talked about is past tense, as if it's already happened. It's that certain. We can take it to the bank. And so because of that, help us each to let go of the things that we don't want to let go of in this life. Help each of us to have more faith in you, regardless of the difficulties that may come or that we're already experiencing. You've taken care of the hardest thing, which is death. You have defeated that final enemy and you've given us life. And as we'll see next week, that's why you can say that great declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. And if there's anyone here who doesn't have that, who does, does not know the resurrection, has not been saved, oh, please, Lord, even today, give them the grace of salvation as you've given us. Help them to repent and believe your gospel and your goodness. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. We love you. Amen.